Welcome to the Influential Nonprofit, the show for nonprofit leaders to grow their influence so they can grow their income and impact. Now, here's your host, Marianne Dersh. And welcome to another episode of the Influential Nonprofit with me, your host, Marianne Dersh. I work with nonprofit leaders to master the art of influence so they can get the most out of themselves and everyone else. And I'm here with Evan Wildstein, new book author and new dad. Yes. Welcome, Evan. Welcome. Evan, um, he calls himself a non-profiteer. Is that like a musketeer, but for non-profit people? You know, <laughs> it, musketeer. When, I, <laughs> when, I, when I actually looked up what a profiteer was, highly negative connotations, non-profiteers. <laughs> you know, they are, I give a definition in the book that they're just people who love non-profits and their people and want to make them better. So awesome. it's all good. So we're going to talk about servant leadership and you 20 years experience leading nonprofits uh, or sorry, leading programs, strategy, fundraising, Juilliard School, Rice University, Asia Society and others. So like lots of big institutions. And um, but in your book is called the Nonprofiteers of the Nonprofiteers Fundraising Field Guide, right? That's Ooh. correct. And I, I made the mistake of giving it a wonky title. You did great. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Now, before we get into all of that, I always start with the, with the one question with the same question, which is tell me you're something you're proud of that you don't get to brag about a lot. I love the question. I've listened to a number of your episodes to see where I can try and offer something unique. And I, one of the core, and we could talk about this, but one of the core behaviors of servant leadership is this commitment to growing other people. It's not something I was overly interested in earlier in my career. I was, I was a former rock and roll musician who was very comfortable being front and center in the spotlight. Uh, so this notion of growing other people was not second nature to me. But what I've learned over the past, especially five or 10 years as I've leaned into this, is I don't get to celebrate this about myself much because I shouldn't. But this idea of growing and promoting other people, especially people on my teams, that has been the most rewarding, interesting an encouraging thing about the work that I've done. I've loved programs. I've loved fundraising, but this commitment to helping my teammates and people that are in my orbit to make them better. Sometimes that means they get so good that they have to leave and go do other things. Yeah. That's that's awesome. I've been very proud to promote people out of our organizations, but I think that's probably a longer answer than um, some other people give to that question. But that's my thing. That's awesome. I love it. I I get the same thing. You know, I have this course, I this up level your influence course. And then after the course, I have people who, who they want to stay. They it's a year long program. And it's always, you know, I say it's a culture, not a cult. People leave, <laughs> you know, but it is, it is bittersweet too. this. I see somebody just grow and go and you're like, Oh my God, it's because that's the point of it. Right. What was the quote on? He said, Oh, on Ted Lasso and Higgins, he said, good leaders, I'm going to botch it up. Everybody's going to know I messed this quote up. Like, good leaders, you know, expect, like, expect you to leave, right? right? Basically, mm -hmm. that's what he was saying. So, yeah. So, Rebecca will take it okay when Keely quits because good leaders, they want you to grow. And they want you to, you know, if you're keeping people status quo, that's not, that really just doesn't benefit anyone. All right. Yep. Well, okay. So, let's get into it. Tell me how is servant leadership like different than or what is the purpose of servant leadership? How is it different than kind of other leadership styles? There are a couple, you know, in formal leadership theory, there's a great book by a guy named Peter Northhouse. It's the, the one we went through. It's literally called Leadership. 
that, we, that a lot of us use in leadership studies programs. And it gets through all the you know, 10, 15, 20 formal versions of leadership. There's the behavioral leadership, great man theory. And that's not necessarily that it's always men, but that's sort of like very charismatic, overwhelming person in the corner office. There's leader member exchange where there's a bit more relational elements between a subordinate and someone who's above them. But servant leadership, in my view, is profoundly different and also profoundly misunderstood in the mainstream. I think there's a lot of folks that tether it distinctly to Christianity and Jesus Christ. He was likely one of the early servant leaders. But this, yes. the, the guy who, who coined servant leadership, his name was Robert Greenleaf in the 1960s and 70s, was a Quaker. I think that's the, the, one of the, the coolest things about it. He had a very silent being about himself. But it's it's a practice that when done well and when done right and when leaned into with the core behaviors of servant leaders, which they're, they're innumerable, but the ones that I focus on center around 10 traits and behaviors, it encourages growth in the entire orbit. I think one of the misunderstandings of servant leadership is this overwhelming need and desire to put other people first. And we see this in our sector all the time where we yes, give, we give, do. give, and yes. our gas tank goes way down, but let's yep. make sure we serve other people. And then burnout is top of the list. And that's not servant leadership, that's service to a fault. And that's something that, that I like to talk about a lot. So servant leadership, I think it's a leadership practice that builds, this closer to the Higgins quote, leadership philosophy that builds other leaders rather than creating more followers. So it, it encourages dyadic relational experiences between the manager and the person that is reporting up to that manager. And I like to think if you were to, I remember a couple months ago on LinkedIn, I asked people what they thought the shape, it was a very broad question, what they thought the shape of leadership was. And some people gave the infinity sign. Uh, some people gave a Mobius strip. Some people gave that like centrifugal circle that goes wider as you go out. Mm -hmm. I think of servant leadership, it's funny, I was eating, uh, my wife and I had ramen couple weeks ago. And you know that the ramen soup spoon, it's got the little hook at the end of it. So yeah. it, it can rest on the side of the bowl. I've been thinking about servant leadership as you know a spoon that can help function. You get the soup out of it, but also absent that little hook at the end, the soup, the spoon is just going to fall right into the bowl and be drowned. So gosh, again, that's another really long answer for you. But that's how I, I a couple of those ways that I think servant leadership is set apart from the other traditional leadership practices. I love what you said because I that's an issue that I work on and help people with is the idea of servant doesn't mean doing everything everybody wants you to do. It doesn't mean right like giving, giving, giving. The I use the roomy quote, uh, we give from the overflow, not the depths of the well. Like so to your giving from the depths of your well, like, oh, I have to because you know, I'm here to serve. It, you can um, serve in a way that enriches you and inspires you and has like healthy and me not knowing anything because you're going to teach me, but healthy agreements and boundaries in a rant around because just helping people, my therapist taught me <laughs> there's, there's, there's helping, there's intervention and there's enabling and helping is like, you're working really hard and I'm going to give you a hand. Intervention is a short-term burst of assistance, right? Like and enabling is like, well, let me do it because I don't think you're going to do it right. Or I don't trust you to do it, you know, so it's okay to help people. Right. But like, like that's, that's the, that's the meter. And that anyway, so, and I feel like as nonprofit leaders, we are want to help. Right. And we want to be of service and of value. And that can often get in the way of our own, right. Like of our own well-being. So tell me, you said there's sort of 10 behaviors, aspects of this. What are some of the key ones that you practice? The 10 that I go by, and I have to make sure that I say this in every conversation, I've, I've not done anything new and interesting. I mean, I think it's interesting, but I've not 
created my own spin on this. So Bob Greenleaf, when he he came to this idea of servant leadership, he wrote this great essay in 1970 called The Servant as Leader. And he wrote about a lot of things, very 30,000 foot stuff. And there's a, another guy who was one of my professors in grad school and became somewhat of a mentor to me. His name is Larry Spears. He took all of the Greenleaf stuff and he, you know, probably with a highlighter, this was back in the early 90s and post-it notes, figured the 10 things Greenleaf spoke about the most. Um, these are all things that I think when you think about practices like being a great listener, being empathetic, being someone who consistently wants to conceptualize and someone who is self-aware, someone who builds community. Those are you know, four or five of them. I think people like you and I and others would look at those and say, that's that's what a nonprofit person does. This is you know different from our counterparts, maybe in the corporate culture. These are all the things we do well. A lot of the servant leader traits were not inherently things I did well. I've not always been a great listener. That's something I've had to practice. There's a, one of my favorite bands, a newer band's called The 1975. They've got a song where the lyric line is, and let me sing it because I have to sing it. This conversation's not about reciprocation at all, but I'm going to wait until you finish so I can talk some more. That's how I think a lot of fundraisers, especially nonprofit people, look at their conversations. It's you're waiting for a pause to interject. That's something I've always done. So having to lean into this practical practice of better listening, not just hearing, those are different skills. I think hearing is a very uh, physiological trait that you do with your ears. And listening, that's something mind-driven where you have to reflect, pause, sit back, make sure your body language is right. I point to a couple of those in the book. So if nothing else, I think a great servant leader is someone who listens. Bob Greenleaf said, if nothing else, listen first. That's how any servant leader approaches a problem. And we've all had those colleagues and bosses who don't do that. You know, they've come with their solution before you've even mentioned the problem. I used to do that. I probably still do that more than I would like. And so it's something I have to practice every day. Um, so listening, the big, big one. There are 10, and I want to make sure I just sort of like run through the 10 for you and I don't Yeah, let's run through the 10 and then I want to go back to the listening real quick. So for everyone, I just would love to run through the 10 so we have them. I'll do them quick. And if there's anything in particular beyond listening that you want to yeah. talk about, we can do that. So listening, I'll number them. One, listening. Two, empathy. Three, healing. Four, persuasion. Five, awareness. Six, foresight. Seven, conceptualization. Eight, our fundraisers will love this one, stewardship. Nine, commitment to the growth of people. And 10, building community. And I say, other than listening being probably the fundamental trait, they really aren't, in my view, in any particular order, nor do right. I think if you do seven of them and not all 10 that you fail at this. It is sort of the, you know, I, I joke that it's like the, the weapons that Batman has in his utility belt. If he's not using all of them at one time, it doesn't mean he's not the caped crusader. They're just at your utility should you need them. Right. So in my view, listening and empathy are huge. And in fact, you know, when the way I train people and the way I actually sell my, you know, enroll people in my business and enroll people and, and teach people is listening, right? Deep listening. And that, that doesn't like, I'm not listening for a specific purpose. I'm listening like, oh, is he going to give me the money? Let me like, right. And I'm, if I'm listening through that lens that I'm missing other things, I'm only seeing that person or paying attention to the things that I want to hear. And so if we I have a thing, releasing the outcome you know, I'm whatever happens is perfect and fine. I can just be fully present, right? And and just listen to like and really listen because people will buy to the level they feel seen and heard. 
And I too, like you at the very beginning, you know, I, you pitch and sell and, and, you know, go in there and like, actually that it, it just puts people on the defensive. And so listening, if you could practice listening and empathy, you know, I can't meet your needs until I know what they are. Right. You, You said something like that. Like, I can't, I can't, I can't, I, you know, if you're just coming with a solution and try, you know, you're just throwing stuff at the wall, you you can't. And so I love that idea because I think that is absolutely paramount. I'm a talker. <laughs> We're in good company. I'm a talker. You're a talker, but I'm also a really good listener. And like you, I had to train myself to be a really good listener. And also, yes, that idea of like, I'm just waiting until you're done talking so I can hear my voice. That is a very typical speech pattern. Or we will swap stories. So one of the things is like the, oh, yeah, but like mm-hmm. you're going to share something like 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 about, I'm sure the, the pregnancy and the birth of your kid, you would share. So like, oh, you know what happened to me where they, they're going to like one up you. And that's that's a typical, you know, that's really not not listening. So um, it is a skill. I want to go back into something healing. Tell me about what does the healing look like in servant leadership? Each one of these things is its own podcast episode. And what I love about this philosophy of servant leadership, it's like you said, if you listen well and you listen with intent, you might need to jump to healing. I remember a conversation or, or several conversations. I mean, I've never worked in healthcare fundraising, but I've worked in organizations where you're you're talking with a spouse whose spouse is ill or has recently passed away. And this idea of one of the things that we we, like I'm part of this tribe that that is said in servant leadership is this perspective of there I am also. And that is being empathetic in a way that you may not be able to get to what you want to get to in the conversation or what you're going for. And healing might be sometimes that if you're talking with a donor or a community partner, that there is some, let's say, bigger picture wrong that needs to be made right. Uh, You may not have caused it. You may not inevitably be the person who is the solution to it, but you can build this bridge towards helping to, to right a wrong. In our sector, one of the things that I always like pointing to is this need for better care. Because when I say nonprofit here, I usually start from the inside, you know, the staff who are leading the programs, how they interact, senior managers and board leaders, and then outward to the community. Healing can sometimes mean ensuring that you're radically pushing for appropriate use of PTO or encouraging that there be better staff benefits so people don't always rise to that level of being burnt out. Healing could be looking at something inconsistently done, let's say with a donor, and I think of this through the fundraising landscape because that's where I've been for the past 10 years. If a donor is consistently saying, please don't send me mail at my house. Healing can be as small as saying, we, we finally, we've received this message. We've made the update to our records. We apologize for doing that. Here's what we've done. So you're never going to, you're never going to get this letter but later, but we'll, we'll send you emails. So I think it's all interwoven. And in that you can build better community by being empathetic, being a good listener, and by virtue leading to a place of healing. Right. Right. All right. I know each one of these is a podcast, just a little intro. So I, you know, this is the influential nonprofit. I teach people influence, which means in my world, getting people you have no, no authority over to do what you want them to do. So that feels to me like persuasion. So in servant leadership, what is, what is the tenant or the, you know, the principle of persuasion? I like going back and I point to this in the book there. Are you familiar with organizationist from you know about 100 years ago, Mary Parker Follett. Does that name ring a bell no. for you? And this is one of the, the things, and I wasn't either before I went to grad school. Mary Parker Follett was, she'd be the Simon Sinek or the Brene Brown of today, but she's sort of all but been forgotten. But her writing, one of her books, The Creative Experience and others, was some of the most persuasive and practical 
when you think of business, it was not nonprofit centric or social impact, but she was talking about firms and businesses. And she wrote about co-active behaviors rather than coercive ones, where when done right and together, the way I think Bob Greenleaf talked about persuasion, you are bringing people to the table in a kind way and in a perspective that doesn't make it seem like you're trying to sell them something. I had a dear colleague say to me recently, and it it hit a little too close to home that fundraisers are sort of like the real estate agents of the nonprofit world. And we chuckled. And then we both kind of looked down at our, our Coca-Colas and said, yeah, that's true. And I think that mentality, or I think the way that people feel about fundraisers sometimes is it, it exists. I've been at meetings where I've gone with our CEO. And when I pull up a chair, the, the donor says, ah, the, the chief development officer is here. I'm on the hook for something. What are you, you know, what are you going to twist my arm for now? And everything we do as fundraisers is in service of net revenue. I, I don't want to, we, we can't just 100% make our job stewardship because we'd never raise any money. But this idea of persuading people by not looking at it through the lens of the, what is it? The, in the arms of the angel, you know, that song that yes, they do with the, Sarah the, mm-hmm. the sick puppies, like that's, that's not persuasive. That's sort of coercive in a way that someone might feel really bad for the puppies and give 10 bucks, but there's nothing really long-term about that. I think persuasion or I feel persuasion is something that is far more long road. And you'd probably assume that a lot of the servant leader traits, you can't listen on the short term. You can't persuade right. on the short term. So that's that's my feeling about that. I do feel like, as you said, we can't just steward because we'll never raise money. I think it's stewardship here's my philosophy. As long as I'm a value to you, you'll be a value to me. Right. And stewardship is like, oh my gosh, Evan, this is amazing. What can I do to help? Where I'm, I'm doing like, if I'm a value to you, you'll be a value to me. So that's what I feel like. All I have to worry about is being a value because then it's like, oh, how can I help you? You know, my, my, my best friend, my BFF is a brilliant fundraiser. He doesn't raise money anymore. One of the things that you know, he, he would always talk about is all I did was be a value all year long. And then at the end of the year, people were like, how can I help me? He's like, just remember me in annual giving. So by the time annual giving came around, people were like falling all over him to give money. Not that he wouldn't take it anytime there, but you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, like, you know what I'm saying? Like he's, so it's like an 11 to one, like every month he's doing something. And then the last month, if I, oh, what can I do for you? And then people were so felt so connected and so good. You know what I mean? And that, that the persuasion was, and I, you know, it, it's about being a value because as long as I'm being a value, I'm okay. Right. And so, and I hear what you're saying, like, because when you're sitting, when you come down, Oh God, now I'm on, Oh, he's going to try to get something from me. And that's not, that's not, first of all, that doesn't work. <laughs> right. And second, that's just not, that's not serving that person or yeah. yeah. All right. I love all of this. I would love to hear a little bit more about in your fundraising experience, how these principles helped you become successful? Helped you like, I mean, there's some big institutions like navigate oh, wealthy people or, you know I mean? Like how did this really, the servant leadership serve you? When I think about them in terms of them being utilitarian, you know, things I can, that I can pull from. And I, and I like that this research that I've done, this book is far more practical than a lot of the things out there on servant leadership. Most of the stuff that I read, when I came up with this idea, I thought I'd be adding to a canon that it pre-existed. And what I found is no one really took the raindrops down from the cloud, and that's a bad analogy, but brought the 
the idea or the ideology down to a practical level. So a couple of things that I point to in the book are things that I've practiced. Some of them hard, some of them have come a bit more easy, but like one of the ways of let's go to, to building community. One of the things that I do um, in any organization where I'm a fundraiser is I always let on the days when there are donations that come in, they could be tiny little donations or they could be you know, the local family foundation that's made of seven-figure commitment. The entirety of the staff knows, either in one organization I used to, when back when we were mostly in person, would do a big post-it note up in the, the workroom, a $5,000 gift from Evan Wildstein. And what I found over time is people would get curious about that. You know, I was at an urban research think tank and one of our researchers who you would have thought he was a mute person, brilliant researcher, not overly communicative, never really talked with the other staff. But he came into my office one day and he goes, what is the such and such foundation? I said, Joe, come talk with me, have a seat. And then we talked about it. And he got so overjoyed with this idea that we are an organization that needs to raise money so we can do things, so we can pay salaries. I ended up down the road taking that person out with me on visits, became far more communicative, far more interested in the whole of doing these things together. So I, I may have skirted away from your initial question, but there are things like that that are very internal and practical that grow how a staff can function. There are ways of bringing, you know, when I think of growing other people. One of the ways that I think fundraisers can be really good sometimes is frankly just by removing ourselves from the equation. This whole like board peer-to-peer ideology, that's not a new thing. I mean, organizations have been doing that for decades, but sometimes the best way a fundraiser can raise funds is to introduce board members to other folks, get them excited about the, the circles that they fly in, things that they're interested in. And what is it? I was listening to your episode with uh, Jordana and she was going down the show me, you know me thing. Yeah. There's, there's some people I don't know, but through volunteers and board members and others, I can get to know them. And you can grow board members' abilities by encouraging and bringing them along on that. And it's that can be kind of exciting. So there are these little practical things that I have done over my career. And what I found, it's almost like one of those kids games. And yes, I've got a baby in the house. So I'm thinking about like how the color matches the color. There are way, so many simple ways that the things that I've done or been trained to do or have learned to do over the past 10, 20 years that fit really neatly when tethered to these core behaviors of servant leaders. And so that's always the surprising thing to me. I said, how has nobody turned this stuff into a book and doesn't necessarily mean that this is going to be useful for everyone, but it was a very simple practice for me. This this book, the, the thing that I'm not sure about saying is that this was a more narrative version of my graduate school thesis. That version had a very heady, long title. It's like activating the core behaviors of servant <laughs> leadership through the lens of, you know, blah, blah, yeah, blah, yeah, blah, yeah. blah. Um, this book, Sexy. for people who aren't looking at it, I didn't design the cover, but it's got a piggy bank on the cover. Um, not wouldn't have been my first choice, but I think it's interesting enough, and and it's a book now. So I know, isn't it great to you get to hold your book? It's it's a really cool feeling. It's weird, but good, good weird. Yeah, every I, I'll pick up my book. I'm like, ooh, this holds up. I'm, I'm you know, <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes maybe, oh right, is that can feel dated? I I I still like it. Okay. I love this idea. So, because I specifically love and what I train people on is the idea of, you know, fundraising or like sales, right? As service, because it's sales, right? Right. It's, it's as service. So how can I be of value to you? And and as long as I, I can set my needs aside and be of value to you, I know that you'll be of value to me. So I, I had a call today just before this and the guy was like, so why do you do these calls? Like what's in it for you? And um, I said, well, you know, I do, I, I want, first of all, to give value, right? Like, and, and second, you know, if, if somebody may be right for a program, that's the best way for me to meet them. 
And also, no matter what happens, I want to make sure I'm giving value, right? And so if all I'm doing is in this world, am I being of service and value? I feel like you can't go wrong. And and also, it's a much more, what I want to say, like grace, like I use these words, grace and ease, energy rich, right? You're not fighting against anything. You're not trying to make people do something. You know, you are using, it's sort of like the go with the flow kind of thing, which for me... I'd rather wake up and do that than have to like go make, you know, go get something. You know, I, I did a workshop and this woman said, I understand what you're saying, Marianne. Like, I get it. Respect the no. It's not for him. I said, thank you so much. Because w- one of the things I was teaching is, you know, your job is to get to know as fast as possible. So that's okay. Move on. And so she came back to the office and her boss said, well, can't you go just get something from him? And often. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> right. <laughs> but often we're put in those positions. Right. Where we get the service. Right. We get that we're to be a value. We get the service. We get seeing people for their the listening, the empathy, empathy, the, all of that. Then you go back and then people are like uh, transactional thinking. Go get something from him. And you see what I'm saying? So I, I yeah. I'm just I guess I'm bringing that up for those people who are listening. Who are like, I get it. But the people around me don't, you know, like how can you how can you create a bigger space for this to live? Even if you're not in like the top leadership position, that was a long way to get to a question, but I got. I I think you've asked it, but I want to pause and let me try and be a good listener and make sure that I've understood. Validate. Mm -hmm. Validate. So one of the things I love when I first learned, I learned about you and the work you do before I learned the name of your show. And I have long, and I've spoken ad nauseum about this, that this idea of, you know, there are two lanes that sometimes cross over about management and leadership. And I'd love that you use the word influence in the title of this show, because the the book definition that I go by for leadership is an individual who influences a group of individuals to achieve a common goal. Now, the things that I love to point to in a phrase like that is phrases like that about influencing, you know, X influencing Y to do Z, whatever the equation is. There's nothing in there about a title or tenure or compensation. Influence can appear in any corner of an organization. And it is not, I would say full stop, it's not always possible to influence this kind of thing. I have had a colleague before who had said to me once, I'd mentioned that a a donor declined a gift, that we had, we methodically and thoughtfully, you know, we did the prospect research, everything, everything was right on paper. It it could have been that I didn't pitch it well, you know, I'll, I'll fall on that sword, whatever it was. And then the response was, well, this person should be embarrassed that they're not a supporter of our organization. And so many things flew through my head and I couldn't quite fathom how to have a conversation around that, but that mentality is there. I'm not sure the best servant leader in the world is gonna be able to transform someone's thinking out of that get or go mm-hmm. mentality. And that's not, I mean, that's not philanthropy. That's not, you know, serving humanity when you break that down. And you you could you could stem that up to programmatic relationships. You know, they, this is a perfect community partner for us. And if it just didn't happen, don't try and fit that peg into the hole where it's not going to go. You know, go right. where how you grow is how you go. So find the place where you are the right thing. And, and I hate to say for, if there are fundraisers or program people listening to this, this may not be the, the wisest advice, but I think if you're in, in an environment like that and you find that to the best of your ability, you're not finding that you can influence that which needs to happen and that version of leadership, all things considered equal, I feel like this is a moment where people need to look inward and reflect and give themselves permission to do what they need to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes the best thing we can do for ourselves is not beat around an organization where we cannot be influential and where we can't do the greatest good for the people we serve and ourselves. Because then it's back to that whole soup spoon falling into the bowl. Right. Right. And, you know, one of the principles I teach is 
you know, our pain comes from the the gap between who people are and who we want them to be. And it's kind of like what I call the 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 queen holding yourself sovereign, no matter the external. And so releasing, sometimes it's releasing the need that you need other people to see it the way you do. Because sometimes when we release that, when we're not trying to get somebody to see it, when we're just showing them, that's when they will move, right? Because I'm not, I don't need you to do this. But if you would choose to explore this, I'd be happy to. You see what I'm saying? That the energy of of choice. And that's really my course. What I I train people on is that idea of how can I have people choose, not be made to, but how can I have them choose to see it differently? Right. And the first thing that we do is, you know, is not care if they choose or not. (laughs) Right. Because the less I likely I am to, the more likely. The more I want something, the less likely I am to get it. So first release the need. And if it, it is great, if not, I keep, right, I keep my sovereignty. And I just, I think that also the cultures that work this way, I think benefit. And I don't know if you have data around this from longevity. I mean, I, there must be some statistics about, you know, how much you raise or or the longevity because so many donors, you know, talk about like all the studies show that donors stay a lot of times because their relationships with staff. Yeah, we have so much staff turnover. So I can imagine if you are working in an environment that values servant leadership, people will stay and they'll be more productive. They'll reach their goals. That I think you and I, unfortunately, and this is something that I want to commit myself to over the next five or 10 years is doing a little bit more of this research. What the research out there that I have seen is that for-profit companies, which is they've got the money to do this research, but they've found that companies like, and you know, let's forgive the recent customer service failures of a lot of these companies, but container stores, Southwest Airlines, Starbucks, and the likes, financial returns of for-profit companies who subscribe to the tenets of servant leadership have more than two and a half times the financial returns than non-servant leader-led companies. It's something like 10% versus 24%. And so I think if you look at the data that are telling the story, that there's a financial return. That might be one way to influence or persuade people that this is a good thing. Um, and because of my brain these days, I've lost the second part of your question. That's a, that was my question. Just like, you know, or, or is there like, do people, is there less turnover, you know, more stability? I I'd imagine there'd be more stability. There would. And I, and I would say, you know, I go back to Clayton Christensen, Edgar Schein, and the, the organizational theorists that I have long read. And when we think about culture, these not the ping pong table, not the summer Fridays, that kind of stuff, but culture, the, the consistent behaviors that an entire organization subscribes to that are done over a period of time that people accept and want to commit to. That's culture. Culture is the cement on which fundraising and other verticals are built. Those of us who have worked in and around servant leader led or servant leader subscribed organizations, it's like the the AFC Richmond locker room. You know, let's do another Ted Lasso correlation there. It's it's a place you want to be. It's a place that people feel consistent. It's a place where they feel the ability to be themselves. And then you don't want to jump every sixteen to eighteen months, which is the average tenure right. of a fundraiser here. And what that the major gift timeline is eighteen months to three years. And you've had two fundraisers in that time when you go by the the standard data. And that's they're not all jumping because they want higher pay. Because let's face it, not a lot of profit 
not a lot of nonprofits are able to offer that. There are a lot of people, again, giving themselves permission to go find something else. And that may just be a slightly better, maybe it's a four-day work week. Maybe it's you know a 10% increase in pay. There, there are so many other things, but people would stick around. And I, one of the things I worry about is what this sector looks like by like 2030, 2035, when we can, we've had this sort of awakening from 2020 through now. It's not like the issues are new. We've just, we're all online. We're all seeing the stories ad nauseum about burnout and stress and all these things. And um, if we can't solve for that, that's X. If we can't solve for X, it's going to be a drastically different industry yeah. over the next seven to 10 years. And I, I do worry about it because our friends in the corporate world, Nathan and Brian in their generosity crisis book, point to all the for-profit companies who are kind of running circles around us, like people that buy Bombas socks because they get socks, but also the socks get donated. Like they have, Some of our for-profit friends have figured out the feel-good portion of it. Maybe people like working at those companies. I think like no longer are we a full populace that is comfortable making you know $9 an hour when you could make the same down the block doing something else right. and deal with the stress. Right. And, and so for me, it's instead of sacrificing ourselves so others can have it, so we, we're the model for the change that we seek, right? So you know, and we could go on about this. That's the biggest shift for me is like, oh, I have to sacrifice. I have to give up so you can have. And actually it's the opposite, right? Like I can be the model. I can, you know, make a living, have a comfortable office and still serve people because I want people to see like, right? Like the model that they, this, we can all raise each other together. I don't have to, because that's not sustainable. And that's what we're finding out, right? Self-sacrifice is not sustainable. <laughs> Yeah. Hustle, hustle, sweat, struggle. That's not sustainable. Grace and ease and flow is sustainable. So how can we create and and that we're then it's okay to have grace and ease and flow. It's okay to have comfort. Like that's we're not, I guess there's a thing like if I do for me, then then I'm taking from you when actually like we can all have, you know, like like and I just and big brothers, big sisters here in St. Louis, and they they made this was years ago, they made this beautiful building, Evan. And people would walk in and you just can't win, right? Because if your offices look like shit, people are like, why are you going to know? Where's my money going? Like, and, and this beautiful office and the company I worked for, 501 Creative, we did the signage and we were going on this tour and it was beautifully lit and so comfortable. And like, wow, you spent a lot of money on this office. She said, absolutely. Because my staff and our littles, our families deserve the absolute best. And you see like, like, it's okay. You see like from that portion of giving everyone the best so they can give others their best instead of like having to struggle. And I, that for me is the the big shift that I would love to see so that we can be kinder to ourselves and that the boards that help that understand that it's okay to invest in people, like we're not taking anything from anyone. All right. I have a question. I have two more questions, Evan. One is, are you like a rock star in your spare time or are you just former rock star? Like, what is your music life? (laughs) Uh, Recovering. I was a performer. Musician just sounds so formal. I did study music in undergrad and realized I'm not shy about sharing the story that I kind of figured I wasn't going to make it. I think I was pretty decent. I was in rock and roll bands that had, you know, little indie label deals. um, And I still dabble in I've got a little recording rig. And uh, most of the time, my wife tells me I'm not I'm not selling myself well enough because I do write catchy jingles for things. Uh, it's mostly a hobby now, but it's one of the things, if I had a tether, 
that quote unquote former life to my current life. It's one of the things that helped me. One of the things you can't tell from Zoom is that I'm quite short. I'm like just over five feet tall. And when people meet me for the first time, they usually, they, we thought you were six feet tall. I think the, the experience of being a lead singer of rock and roll bands and singing in jazz groups and things created a personality that makes me very comfortable being forward and outward. That's been the thing that's kind of, I've had to work on that. To, to really lean into servant leadership. There's not a lot of bravado-driven servant leaders. I think some people are thought leaders, but they say servant leader and they kind of, it's like a misnomer. But yeah, music and rock music was long answer. Again, again, what I thought I'd be doing in my 40s and it's not what I'm doing in my 40s and that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. All right, last question. And you probably know this. So now I love karaoke. Did karaoke on Friday night, crushed some songs. So I know that you're a musician, but if we were ever at karaoke, what would be your, what's your go-to song? Oh gosh. It's one that you never find on the karaoke machines. My favorite band, again, not shy to admit, is a little pop group called Jimmy Eat World. I've yeah, been of course. a rabid fan of theirs for a quarter century. Uh, and they have this seven plus minute symphonic, <laughs> beautiful piece of song called 23. And... It is a powerhouse seven minutes, and I have listened to that song probably 5,000 times, and I well up in tears every time I listen to it because it is one of the most beautiful pieces of music. And I did once, in, I'm from around New York City, and I did once at a bowling alley slash karaoke place with some former colleagues find that song, and it was the worst synth, terrible drums version of it that you've ever had. And I had quite a few libations, and I, I just recall, but that would be the song. Again, long, right. answer, long answer to say. <laughs> Seven minutes. <laughs> it's a beautiful song. Anyone listening, buy the book. Don't and buy what's the book. The song, Go what's listen. the song called? 23. 23. Jimmy World 23. All right. I was just, you know, thought you were going to kick out a little journey or something like that. So <laughs> that would have been an easy answer. I, think. I know. Right. That's awesome. Well, Evan, this has been great. Thank you for being here and sharing this. The book is tell me the title. The nonprofit, let me give you the full title because I think there's sort of two parts. The nonprofit tiers fundraising field guide, colon, 30 practical ways to boost philanthropy through servant leadership. I love it. That's not clunky. That's awesome. Well, that's nice uh, to hear. All right. And <laughs> and um, people want to get in touch with you or buy the book, where can they go? Pretty vocal on LinkedIn, just Evan Wildstein or the book and other good things you could find at thenonprofiteers.com. All right. And on Amazon to the, all the other places. And we'll have the links in the show notes. So you can go grab the link there. Evan, it was awesome. Thank you so much. I love doing this podcast because I make new friends and I feel like I made a friend today. So I oh, hope you, you do too. Good luck with the book and the baby and everything else in your life. Thank you so much. You're, this is fantastic. Thanks for having me and keep doing this. It's wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Influential Nonprofit with your host, Marianne Dersh. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your friends and colleagues about the podcast. Also, check out theinfluentialnonprofit.com for more resources on growing your influence so you can raise more and do more.